talking all things wound care. This is The Pressure Effect, brought to you by Smith & Nephew. Welcome to The Pressure Effect from Smith & Nephew. I'm your host, Dr. David Zobel. On today's episode, we continue our four-part series that examines a fictional pressure injury case from beginning to end. This is part three of Avoidable or Unavoidable, the unstageable pressure injury of Mr. Y. On earlier episodes, we discussed how to make a determination about unavoidability. Today, our guest is pressure injury prevention researcher and associate professor in the School of Nursing at Boise State University, Dr. Jenny Alderden. Jenny and I will dig deeper into the topic of unavoidability determinations and discuss some common pitfalls in the process. Welcome, Dr. Alderden. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. To start off, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background in the medical field? as well as your research and prevention of hospital-acquired pressure injuries. Absolutely. I've been a bedside critical care nurse for 20 years now. I started my career in the military, where I was a critical care nurse in the Navy. I also served as a helicopter nurse during the Iraq War and as a critical care air transport nurse using fixed-wing aircraft. Most of my research about pressure injury prevention in the ICU has looked at turning and repositioning, the way we document, what that means and what it doesn't mean, and then also some of the risk characteristics of ICU patients. Well, Jenny, thank you certainly so much for your service and this time you spent overseas. What was it during this time where you probably saw a range of injured servicemen and women that really got you involved into the concept of nailing down pressure injury prevention? Yeah, so I will tell you when I was in El Anbar, Iraq, it was in 2006, And I cared for a young man who had been very badly wounded by an improvised explosive device, an IED. And he managed, we kept him alive. We resuscitated him in the helicopter. We got him all the way back to the United States. He flew on a CCAT mission to the U.S. In 2008, I left the U.S. Navy and I went to grad school at the University of Washington. And while I was at the VA in Seattle, I actually ran across this young man again. But he was at the Seattle VA. He was not able to go home because he had a terrible sacral pressure injury. So instead of going home during rehabilitation, this young man was just profoundly depressed and stuck in the hospital. And that's when I really changed course of my career from a wanting to be a really crackerjack ICU nurse to trying to better understand how we can prevent pressure injuries. That's a great story, Jenny. It seems like individuals that were in servicemen and women that had these horrific traumas and were able to be removed from the field and had their surgeries and were brought back to life, so to speak. It almost seems like it's not even possible, but they're still in the hospital setting because of a pressure injury. They are. And in fact, in a, I think it was a 2009 study in military medicine, something like 60% of severely injured service members in the Iraq war ended up developing pressure injuries. They were incredibly common. We've gotten better at some things since then. I don't think the numbers are as high in our more recent engagements, but certainly still too high. So today, we're going to be continuing to discuss the fictional case study of Mr. Y, which is the case of a hospital-acquired pressure injury. Right off the bat, what are the most common pitfalls in being able to show that a pressure injury was unavoidable? So in nursing care, uh, I teach nursing students now, we always tell nurses and nursing students, if it wasn't documented, it wasn't done. But I think those of us that work clinically know that, of course, that's not true. 
In fact, in my experience, some of the nurses who provide the most exquisite nursing care are not the ones who spend a lot of time carefully documenting their care. So one of the most difficult pieces of avoidable versus unavoidable is we have to show that patients were repositioned according to the repositioning protocol, which is usually every two hours in the ICU. But as you can imagine, you're a critical care nurse, you're caring for two patients, things are happening with those two patients. Turning the patients is usually a high priority, but documenting that you did the turns is not usually something that we think about. It doesn't impact patient care, whether or not we document the turns. And I'll tell you in my own clinical experience, if I had a busy day or a family that needed me or a patient on comfort care or some other reason that I wasn't able to spend a lot of time documenting, I would try to remember at the end of my shift to document that I had turned those patients, but I'm certain that some of the time I just forgot to document it at all. So Jenny, it sounds like you and I have both been in the field for a little bit of time, and you probably remember when all the documentation was done manually. Today's world, we almost always document our things using the assistance of a computer medical record. Do you find that to be an easier way to perform the documentation, or has it really helped or hindered you? So that's a great question. And I will preface this by saying that I do most of my research using EHR data. A lot of what I do is apply machine learning techniques to that huge volume of data that nurses and physicians and other caregivers produce. So while I'm grateful for electronic health record documentation, I'd like to tell you a little bit about how much we document these days. So critical care nurses spend about 25 or more percent of our time now simply documenting nursing care. And that is way up from when we were using a pencil and paper. We document about 600 distinct data points in a typical 12-hour shift and many, many, many more data points if we have an unstable patient or something's going on. So the sheer volume of documentation, and I think this is true for physicians as well, but the sheer volume of documentation is a tremendous burden for bedside critical care nurses. It takes our time away from our patients. Well, I've always sort of suspected that those numbers existed, but I don't know that I've ever heard somebody tell me the numbers right off the top of their tongue like that. Appreciate that. Could you tell our listeners about the purpose and findings from your documentation study published in Critical Care Nurse, April 2022, increasing nursing documentation efficiency with wearable sensors for pressure injury prevention? Absolutely. So this study, which was led by a fabulous clinician, her last name is Rose, and she's a nurse practitioner. In this study, patients at a rural medical center in Texas were given what's called the LEAF sensor. So the LEAF sensor is a triaxial sensor, and the sensor can determine when a patient has been turned. And using the sensor, it could automatically feed that information about the patient's position and that they had been repositioned right into the EHR. So in Rose's study, she and our research team took a sample of patients, and we just looked at the way documentation was done. So in this sample of medical ICU, surgical ICU, and telemetry patients, we discovered that we only documented care, and this doesn't mean they weren't repositioned, but it means we only documented it every 6.6 .6 hours. That was the mean, when it's supposed to be every two hours that we turn our patients. So that was our comparison group. And then we put those sensors on the patients, and using the sensors, Repositioning data was immediately fed right into the EHR. The nurses didn't have to take the time to document. The EHR would also know if a patient repositioned himself or herself. Many of our ICU patients still have the ability to move. And so if a patient rolled over, that would capture the patient's turn as well. And using this study, the 6.6 .6 hour repositioning interval, a mean of 6.6 .6 hours between turns, 
was updated to 2.4 hours when the leaf sensor was used. And we think a big part of that is simply that it captured all those repositioning events that likely were already occurring, but weren't necessarily being documented by the nurses and the other clinicians. So Jenny, the patient that has one of these leaf sensors and they're moving themselves, would it still be then able to alert you, the the nurse taking care of this patient, that they hadn't moved for a while and, and to remind you to reposition the patient and then immediately document it for you? Absolutely. So I am a big fan of the leaf sensor as a way to reduce nursing documentation burden, but also to reduce nurses' burden in general. Because what the leaf sensor will do is it will tell you, hey, your patient in room 232, they just moved, they turned over, so it will turn them green. So I'll know and the rest of the care team will know I don't need to go in and turn that individual. On the other hand, if I have another patient that hasn't been turned, that patient will show red on the monitor. So then I'll know, oh, I need to go turn that patient. And the reason that's really useful in nursing is because nursing is really a team sport. We're assigned usually two patients each in the ICU, but, but we all look out for all of each other's patients. However, I don't know when anyone else's patient needs to be turned. It's usually not a critical enough piece of information that we hand that off to each other. For example, if I'm going to the CT scanner with a sick patient, I might say to my colleagues, hey, can you give so-and-so some insulin? I'm probably not going to remember to say, hey, you need to please reposition so-and-so. But the nice thing about that sensor and especially the board that will say who needs to be repositioned and when is that it encourages that kind of teamwork in the nursing staff. It tells us, oh, look, you know, this person is red. We should run in and turn them. Well, that seems like a certainly very useful tool that we should have available to us. What's your experience with most of the hospital centers in the United States utilizing the technology that's available to them to help in our patients in this avoidable or unavoidable situation? So using this kind of technology, the thing that I think is useful about the LEAF sensor is it does not add anything especially critical care nurses have so much on their plates that I'm really not a fan of asking nurses to put in one more data point or to do one more thing. But what the sensor can do is it can take things off nurses' plates. It can do some of their documentation for them. It can give them credit in a sense. When a patient repositions themselves, then the nurse knows they don't have to do it. When we start to incorporate technology into healthcare and especially critical care, there's often not enough insight into workflow. Workflow is, does this technology help you in the existing processes of patient care that you have to do? And nurses have a pretty well-defined workflow because we have so many discrete tasks that we need to do while we take care of families and while we provide social support to patients, all those kind of things. So there was another study. uh, The author of the study was Termal, and this was in the American Journal of Critical Care in 2022 that I was involved with. And they also looked at this piece. They said, hey, is the LEAF sensor useful to you in terms of this queuing piece? Because they were able to show, yes, it reduces documentation burden, but what about that queuing piece? And the nurses in the terminal study really felt like using the LEAF sensor had increased their teamwork and therefore reduced their individual workload, their burden. Wow, that's very helpful. So like you said, nursing is a team sport and anything that you can do to help the team work better as a team is certainly in the patient's best interest. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with the audience, Jenny? I'd like to tell you one other thing that was pretty interesting in Rose's study in critical care nurse. Rose found that for patients with obesity specifically, their mean repositioning interval was about 9.4 hours between repositionings for obese patients. And when the LEAF sensor was used, that was reduced all the way down to two and a half hours. 
So it's very likely that these kind of sensors will be especially useful for some of our patients that are a little harder to reposition. Patients where you have to get perhaps a team, you know, you need a few people sometimes to move a heavier patient. And I think that the reason, we're speculating, but I think the reason that it was so useful in some of these more difficult to reposition patients is because it can help nurses identify, oh, this person needs to be turned. And then everyone you're working with can see that too, and they can come in and help you. That's really powerful, Jenny. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Alderton. That's it for this episode of The Pressure Effect. I want to extend a big thanks to Dr. Jenny Alderton for joining us today to share the common pitfalls of determining unavoidability. Tune in next episode as we conclude our four-part series, Avoidable or Unavoidable, The Unstageable Pressure Injury of Mr. Y. Next episode, we'll wrap up the case of Mr. Y. So don't forget to tune in. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review. I'm Dr. David Zabel. See you next time.